Well, welcome to the Sound Words Podcast, where it's our goal to help Christians love and live out God's Word. I'm Pastor Aaron Nicholson. This is Pastor Jesse Randolph. And today we have a special guest with us from California, Dr. James Fazio. Thanks for being here, Dr. Fazio. It's a pleasure to be with you guys today. Great. Great to have you. Um, Just by way of introduction, Dr. Fazio is Dean of Bible and Theology at Southern California Seminary. Uh, He's an educator, serves as the professor of biblical studies at SES, specializing in hermeneutics and historical literature. He's a writer. He has authored, edited, and contributed to several publications. Um, he Locally, he is a teaching elder at Grace Fellowship of San Diego, and he is married to Amy Fazio, and they have four children together. So a busy man, and for that especially, we thank you for taking the time to answer some questions for us on biblical covenants. Oh, it's a privilege. Glad to be here. Great. Dr. Fazio, thanks again. Uh, you know, you and I go back a ways in different circles and settings and have had a chance to interact in different ways. So grateful to have you on the program and, and just going to start with a real basic question as we look at covenants. Uh, what is a covenant? What's the definition of a covenant? How would you define a biblical covenant? Great question. Question of terms is always an important place to start. And uh, I when we're talking about biblical terms, I like the Bible to define those terms as much as possible and to use terms consistently with the way Scripture uses them. And I say that because there are uh, theological observations that we make that um, theologians will refer to theological covenants, and I don't think that's incorrect. But I think that um, more precisely and to be you know more consistent across the board, we should turn to Scripture and look at how Scripture defines a covenant. And this is not one of the areas where Scripture is silent. So Scripture has much to say about covenants, and therefore we don't really even need to look much further than the book of Genesis, although it is throughout Scripture. But in Genesis, we see the, the very first time this word in the Hebrew, we have berit, this Hebrew word covenant, and it is repeated throughout uh, Genesis. We see it with Noah. And the Greek, we have diatheke, but it's expressing the same word. These are two words which appear in both the Old and New Testaments, and they're used consistently. We understand in the New Testament where you have the New Covenant and references to the Old Covenant, specifically in the book of Hebrews, its reference is very consistent with the way the Old Testament uses them. So there's obviously... Uh, covenants spoken of throughout Genesis also between men, you know, parity covenants between one man and another. So, um, you know, in that regard, you have a difference between a, a parity covenant and what's often referred to as a suzerainty covenant or a covenant between a greater and a, and a lesser, like a king to a vassal. So, you know, these are different ways that we understand covenants, but really the best way to define them is uh, from Scripture, the way Scripture presents them. And we see when Scripture presents a covenant, it presents it as a binding agreement between two parties. It's a binding agreement. And of course, there's much more to be said about conditional or unconditional, whether there are certain expectations to be performed on the basis of the one entering the covenant. But again, I think we want to focus on the covenants between God and man specifically, uh, and not man to man with uh, like Jacob and Laban or, or things like that. But when you get to divine covenants, you've got God, who is a covenant maker, 
and he is not a covenant breaker. He, it is impossible for him to lie. So when he speaks something, he speaks truth and he enters into something as a perfect covenant keeper. And so when you're talking about the biblical covenant, such as with God makes with Noah, um, he's entering a binding agreement uh, with Noah and, and whomever he declares in the case of the Noahic covenant, it is, it's so profound because it is really the first time we see this word and it's not appearing only once there, but it's repeated throughout the chapters of Genesis through six through nine. We see this word used over and over again, the covenant that God made with Noah and with his descendants. It even says with the entire earth. So it establishes like all kinds of framework and baseline for us to understand covenants because many covenants will come later. We'll see it with Abraham announced in 12, but really entered into, we see in chapters 15 and then 17, we see the very clear parameters there of a covenant. And then we see it repeated later in Exodus with Moses and with all of Israel. And so this is the kind of things that we come to expect even before we leave the, the Pentateuch of understanding the framework of covenants, even before we get to David and, and so on. So scripture says a lot about covenants that being binding agreements um, it's not something that God is is going to fail in, but in many cases, when God is bound to man, there's almost the built-in expectation that man will fail because man's fallible. God knows entering a covenant that he's entering with an unfaithful people. He He knows it from the beginning. When he entered a covenant with Noah, it was just after repenting that he had made man, <laughs> you know, so um, he knows what man's capable of. Uh, when he enters it with with uh, Moses and Israel, we see right away on the very day in which he made the covenant with them, they broke the covenant, you know, and so um, I'm, I'm not going to go on too much further on that. I think just the idea here is the baseline idea. Uh, God makes covenants with man. These are unilateral covenants, and I say that as opposed to bilateral but between a husband and a wife or these kind of things. Of course, there there are arrangements that we, we can get into a little bit more when we get into the Mosaic Covenant. We see that there are if-then sort of statements, which makes it a um, uh, there's an expectation stated where God says, I expect this of you, and if you do this, I will do this, but if you do this, then I will do this. And, and that's baked into that covenant, making it a little different than some of the others. Yeah, I think that's really important for our conversation today is to draw the distinction between God being a covenant maker, not a covenant breaker, and man who makes covenants with other men. Yeah, it's built in that men will break the covenants they make. Um, so thank you for defining those terms for us, Dr. Fazio. And I know you you walked through some covenants a little bit already, but could you maybe just overview some of the major biblical covenants for us, even the some, if some that you mentioned? Uh, who, what are they and who are they given to? I'm going to narrow it down between the covenants between God and man. We see beginning in Genesis, um, God makes the first covenant with Noah. And that's a covenant with all of humanity, all of creation, it, it, with the entire earth, it says, you know, because he will not flood the earth. Um, it really establishes a baseline between God and man. You know, it, it's the, the expanse of it is there's only eight people on the world at that time. And so it's, it covers everyone. Besides that, we see God's covenant with Abraham. And again, it extends to those. It's repeated them with Isaac and with Jacob. And so it's a renewed covenant. It's a repeated covenant. We know it's affirmed. It's confirmed. 
Another key feature is that God will give a sign of a covenant so that he will really signify it. We do the same thing with marriage, right? You know, I mean, we we wear a ring, we, we, we use some form of token to remind us of the binding of a covenant, you know, and, and so these would be common things, um, whether it be the rainbow in the sky or the sign of circumcision with Abraham, of the Sabbath day with Israel, um, you know, we, we see these signs given to to affirm the covenant that God made. And it's also renewed unto the next generation and the next generation. So um, from Abraham, we see the covenant with Moses and with all of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant commonly referred to. So we've got the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses and Israel. And of course, we know that as the Mosaic covenant. Now, these three are generally universally acknowledged. What what happens is, um, you know, different readers will, will look differently at the next covenant that we see at the end of Deuteronomy. Um, we have a Deuteronomic covenant, uh, a land covenant, and and uh, many would sort of see that as um, sometimes just an extension of the of the Mosaic Covenant, but I think that really is a wrong way of understanding that. First of all, the text makes it very clear that this is not the same covenant that God made with Moses, but this is a different covenant. Um, it states that right there in Deuteronomy twenty nine and thirty. It, it, it the contrast that it makes is very clear, and the parameters of the covenant is very distinct as well. So, although it wouldn't simply be a restatement of the same covenant, there's certainly got to be some other shades to it. I understand that as a completely different covenant. It's a land covenant. Some also might refer to it as a Palestinian covenant. But that covenant is one which promises Israel occupancy of the land. Uh, but it also anticipates, I mean, there's a lot of prophecy built into that. There, It anticipates their their failure, their falling away. Um, that's, that's, that's baked into it. So it's not, you know, some would say, well, there's if then statement in there. Well, no, it's, it's really when then. <laughs> in other words, when you do this, then this will happen. But God will regather you from the four corners of the earth and will restore you to the land. So, so that's really baked into the covenant. Now, one covenant that often is overlooked, and I, I've already even sort of skipped over it because it doesn't play a real prominent theme here. I usually link it. In fact, I should say scripture usually links it with the next covenant um, that I'm about to mention. But, you know, the Davidic covenant one that's often very much in prophecy linked to the Davidic covenant is the Levitical covenant. And I skipped over that, but back in Numbers 25, we see a Levitical covenant. It's actually sometimes referred to as a Phineas covenant. It's a covenant that God enters into with the Levites because of the zeal of Phineas. And so it, it, it preceded, that is to say, God entered that covenant with the tribe of Levi even before he established the land covenant before Israel went into Canaan in Deuteronomy. But it's it's spoken of in conjunction with the Davidic covenant throughout prophecy. So Jeremiah refers to the covenant that God made with Levi and with David. Of course, two different houses, um, um, you know, David being of the house of Judah, um, Levi, even though it was made specifically with Phineas, it was the Levitical covenant. And so these two covenants are always spoken of together. And I believe the reason for that has to do again with the fulfillment of these covenants. These are covenants that we will see the fulfillment of in the millennial in the millennial kingdom. And so in the millennium, when God fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, he will also in, in that same framework be fulfilling the Phineas covenant, the covenant with Levi, uh, the priesthood, the perpetual priesthood upon the earth and the covenant with uh, Judah, uh, which is the, the kingly 
line um, and that Christ will occupy the Davidic throne for a duration of a thousand years. So, so these are where we see the fulfillments of all of these covenants that we see throughout scripture. Now, the one that we haven't mentioned yet, of course, is one that's very much on in everybody's minds, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 through 33 talks about God will make, he promises that he will make a new covenant and he states who the recipients of that covenant will be. He will make them with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he says that it will not be like the covenant that he made with them on the day when he led them by the hand out of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, he says. So he's making it very clear that it is a different kind of covenant. Same people, same recipients. In fact, Paul makes the point in Romans 9 that all the covenants belong to Israel. They are the ones to whom belong the promises and the covenants. This is important because a lot of times people will, um, you know, maybe lay claim on one or more covenants, and we really need to properly understand how the Bible expresses these covenants so that these are Israel's covenants. And we see that in all the recipients. I mean, other than the Noahic covenant, which we've made very clear, it, it, the first covenant God made was with everyone. But, you know, from Abraham on with Moses, Phineas, the Deuteronomic, uh, Davidic, and the new, these are covenants that God has promised for Israel. And so, really, in all the covenants, the main issue is that God is faithful. His faithfulness demands fulfillment. We don't see those covenants fulfilled yet. And so, that demands a future fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. And that's what we're anticipating and looking forward to. Amen. That's incredibly helpful and, and clarifying as we think through the, the different biblical covenants. Now, Dr. Fazio, any one of us could walk into a, a Christian bookstore or a, even a seminary library or a theological library, pull a systematic theology off the shelf. We'd see those covenants mentioned, but then we might also see these three other covenants mentioned that had, go by the name of covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, um, the, the theological covenants as they're known in the, in the system of covenant theology. Could you help us unpack some of the differences or distinctions to be drawn between the biblical covenants that you just articulated and outlined and these so-called theological covenants. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, one of the things that we, uh, when, when we're doing theology, we tend to use language a little differently, um, you know, and we're comfortable with it usually. I mean, I, ideas like uh, Trinity, you know, not a word used in the Bible. But we understand what we're communicating. And, um, you know, it's probably more helpful in coming up with theological terminology when it's terms that aren't used in the Bible. I mean, it, we're not confusing a biblical term in that case. So, you know, what covenant theology does is it, is it, um, tries to work out a theological framework of understanding all of scripture by means of a covenantal motif. So it's looking at a theme of covenant and a covenant making God, which he is a covenant keeping God, which he is, uh, but then tries to extrapolate that beyond the biblical covenants and understands a sort of covenantal framework for all of history. God with respect to man really stretching back as far as Adam. So when you covenants, you mentioned covenants of works and of grace are both covenants that God is said to have made with Adam as a representative of all, of all of humanity. So it creates really these overarching covenants that 
uh, supersede, if you will, they precede, you know, I mean, they come before if, if it's with Adam, it's we're, we're talking in the, in the first and third chapters of Genesis is where these covenants are said to have uh, occurred again, as one who likes to limit my language to the biblical text, because if we're using biblical terms, we just create all kinds of confusion. If we're not allowing the Bible to define our terms to, to look at a covenant within the framework of God's dealings with Adam, there's certainly God is a covenant making and keeping God. So, you know, God works with man on a transactional nature. These things are true, but then to read a covenant into the language of God saying, you know, do not take of the fruit of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. I mean, that's not a covenant. Um, as we come to experience, see, and, and see them expressed in scripture, that is not a covenantal language. Um, even in, in Genesis three, now I, I'm referring to that covenant would be the basis for the covenant of works. In other words, Adam, don't do this. Well, Adam did it. And so they would say he broke the covenant. And then in chapter three, God is then entering a new covenant of grace, basically saying, well, you have done this. You've disobeyed. It's okay. I'm going to make another framework for you covered by my grace. Well, these are theologically understood, and, and the church has done this. I mean, for centuries, this goes back to you know just post Reformation. This is this idea of you know covenant. I mean, this is in the Westminster Confession. We see the reference to these covenants, covenants of works and of grace, and we'll leave kind of redemption to the side for the moment and just deal with these two. These are the two that are agreed upon by covenant theologians. Um, but you know, again, if you're reading covenants into this, then why did God enter a covenant with Adam? In Genesis 3, when the language that he used in speaking to Adam is really no different than the language he used in speaking to Satan, the serpent. Did God also enter a covenant with Satan? I mean, how many covenants are we going to read into Genesis here, especially when it's right there in that context? I mean, nobody would imagine God entered a covenant with Satan. So why did he enter a covenant with Adam? You know, I mean, the language is no different. There's not any special covenantal language that expressed in the one that's not an expressed in the other. So, so I think we need to be careful of isogeting covenants wherever we want to kind of see them in, in a broad brush strokes. I think we should be much more precise with this language because God is precise with the language in scripture. And so, while it's not, you know, it's not wrong to make observations about how a covenant keeping God is doing a transactional nature in his dealings with man throughout all of history, I think we really need to stop short of calling it something that scripture doesn't call it, because then it really colors the way we look at all of scripture and in a way that, that, that puts a much more of a stamp of man on it rather than a stamp of, of God's language and how God has revealed himself. Yeah, that is helpful and important. So, Dr. Fazio, if, you know, say a listener is listening to this podcast and they say, okay, here are the biblical covenants, why is it important that I understand the biblical covenants and um, what do they mean for me? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the biblical covenants are not insignificant to God, and so they should not be insignificant to us. It shouldn't be something we should gloss over. I made mention of this earlier when I said God being a covenant keeping God, if he says he will do something then we can take it to the bank that he will do it. And when we look at the covenants, this presents one of the theological challenges for many Christians looking at this uh, covenant and reformed sort of perspective. We'll look at this and say, well, we're not going to say God has broken his word, but he, we don't see him to have fulfilled these covenants in the way Israel would have expected him to. So, because 
God's not wrong, then Israel must have been wrong in their understanding of the covenants, or we who are expecting God to fulfill them in a manner in which he made them with Israel, as, as Paul emphasizes in Romans 9, that these covenants are Israel's, well, maybe they're applied to a more spiritual Israel. Can we still get a covering of all these covenants if we were to kind of extrapolate them in a bit of a spiritualizing or an allegorical manner to say that he's, God really wasn't covenanting to give Israel the land, but to give the church an ethereal or spiritual portion, you know, a heavenly blessing or something like this. And then we end up kind of just extrapolating it all in a, in a much more different way and subsequently end up really minimizing um, the very significance of the covenants which God made, which I don't think are insignificant to him. And so, um, really the implications are if God is a covenant keeping God, and he is, and we understand these covenants correctly, that they are going to be fulfilled in the manner in which he said they would be fulfilled with the very recipients to whom he gave them, well, then this really demands a future fulfillment. And if we have an eschatological perspective that we are the fulfillment of the ages right now, the church is, then there is no point beyond the present for those covenants to be fulfilled. And we must change the meaning of them or really just minimize them in our system of theology so that the biblical covenants are not of great importance. And to the extent that the covenants are, we um, say, well, maybe they were broken, man broke them. Of course, in the case of the Mosaic covenant, we know that to be we know that to be so. It's it's clearly stated that it was broken, which is why God gave a new covenant. You know, it's interesting even in that statement, new covenant. With all the covenants, why is there only one new? And it's because there's only one old. I mean, that in itself says something, right? There's a, and, and they're both identified in Hebrews. So we're not left guessing what is the old covenant. It's the Mosaic covenant. How could there be so many covenants, but only one old? Well, because the others were not conditional covenants which could be replaced. Only the old covenant, which was broken, could be replaced. It's, so it's the only old one. Even though there are older in terms of time, there are covenants that preceded the old covenant, but those were not conditional covenants. It could be broken and thus could be replaced. But because the old covenant, as stated very clearly in Jeremiah 31, because the old covenant was broken, God replaced it with a new covenant. The point with the new covenant and each of the other covenants which stand is that God will fulfill them. It demands a future fulfillment, and that timing is the millennial kingdom. Thorough, comprehensive, helpful. Thank yeah. you. Um, yes. Dr. Fazio, you and uh, Corey Marsh are co-editors of a new book that's coming out in just a couple of weeks called Discovering Dispensationalism. And in that, in that work, I know you've written that first chapter on the ancient um, New Testament era roots of what we now call dispensationalism. Um, how did the Christians of that period view the biblical covenants of which you just spoke? Well, you know, we don't see it as a prominent theme in the New Testament outside of the book of Hebrews. And that in itself is significant because we understand that the New Testament primarily, I mean, with, with some exceptions in the Gospels and the book of Hebrews and James and, and so on and so forth, few exceptions, the New Testament is primarily written to Gentiles. And we've already said, Paul calls attention to the fact that the, that the covenants of the Bible were not for the Gentiles. And so, therefore, we don't see it as a prominent theme throughout the New Testament. Um, we see it referenced more than anywhere else in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, because it is the book that is 
aptly named addressed to a Hebrew reader. So it is drawing that connection from the Old Testament to God's faithfulness as a covenant-keeping God. So all of that to say, we, we don't have a lot of statement outside of the book of Hebrews, just a little here and there. And Paul, of course, is the most inclined to use that term. He refers to it in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. But the idea of um, covenants is is one where it w- which would have been universally understood in the way we've used the term, and in many ways, of course, even the way we use it in common vernacular today, we think of it as parity covenant between husband and wife, and we understand the idea that you know what God has 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 brought together, let no man put asunder. I mean, you know, the idea of, of unbreakable covenants, even though we find workarounds and, and, and we don't honor the covenants, being covenant breakers ourselves, being man. But they would have understood it in much the same way. Uh, it's, it's very universal and and it it stretches back from Genesis all the way through the New Testament. So it's scripture really speaks with a unity, with a consistency on the issue of biblical covenants. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that book coming out, Discovering Dispensationalism, around June 1st. Is that the publishing date? It is June 1st. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Dr. Fazio, for being with us today and for helping us understand biblical covenants. Uh, You gave us a lot to to think about and mull over, and uh, we appreciate your wisdom on the subject. My pleasure being with you. Thanks, guys, for inviting me. You bet. Thanks, listeners, for listening to the SoundWords podcast. If you found this episode helpful, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on podcast platforms or Facebook or Instagram. And so we encourage you to do that. Pastor Jesse, any last words for us today? Last words go to God and His Word, 2 Timothy 1.13, where he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Wonderful. Thanks for listening to the podcast.